This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in for your usual host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is Andrew Miller. Hello. And Rafaro Manyepa. Hello. And from our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem is Brent Noctegal. Shalom, shalom. Well, on the show last Friday, we discussed the Prime Minister of Italy, Mario Draghi, facing all kinds of political pressure and attempting to resign, but his resignation attempt at that time was rejected. But then yesterday morning, Draghi tendered his resignation once again, and this time the president accepted it. So Italy, and Europe now really, has a major leadership vacuum at a critical time. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, he successfully managed to resign this week. So uh, on Wednesday, Mr. Draghi had his kind of make or break moment in Parliament that would reveal whether he could cobble together some kind of coalition that could continue uh, or whether he would fail to do that. And ultimately, he failed to uh, he, he couldn't match all the different contradictory demands of these different parties. I think it's worth noting the conditions that Mario Draghi came in in all the way back in February 2021, where uh, he he came in to, to implement economic reforms in Italy and to try and deal with some of their financial problems. He wasn't really interested in doing much apart from that. So he didn't want to be a right wing leader or a left wing leader. I mean, he has, I guess, the general center left views of your average Eurocrat. But uh, he didn't really want to be beholden to one part of the political spectrum. He wanted to come in there, have a broad basis of support in Parliament so he could push through some of these reforms that would require a broad base. I guess some maybe potentially even changes to the Constitution, that sort of thing. And Wednesday's uh, debate in Parliament and, and confidence vote revealed that that was no longer that was just not possible. You know, the, the parties on the right would refuse to govern with the parties on the left and the parties on the left would put conditions that weren't compatible with the parties on the right, et cetera, et cetera. He could not get that broad base of co- uh, uh, together. So he tendered his his resignation. And as you said, this is a big moment for all of Europe. And if, if you look at you know, who is going to be the person that provides leadership to Europe right now, uh, and Europe needs leadership right now. There's, there's the high inflation and the economic problems we spoke about last time. There's Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all of the different things that we, we come back to again and again on the show week after week, the fallout from that. Uh, and, okay, well, who's going to lead Europe? Olaf Schulz. Well, people thought he might. He's relatively new. His popularity has plummeted, and he is, I think people have written him off by now as a fairly weak leader. Emmanuel Macron very much wanted to be Mr. Europe. Uh, he has suffered terribly in uh, elections at home. He no longer has a majority in his own parliament. Uh, he's finding it very hard to get even little things done in France. Uh, for example, he tried to bring back, I think it was face masks or, or COVID passports for uh, tourists and was defeated by his, his own parliament. I'm kind of glad that he was. Uh, but the point is he can't even get relatively mundane pieces of legislation passed these days. So you know, he's out. Draghi was in, in many ways the last kind of hope for, for European leadership. 
Uh, he's been the head of the European Central Bank. He's widely respected across the European Union. He's gone. That really does accentuate uh, that uh, that leadership vacuum. You mentioned uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine briefly there, and Draghi had really taken an uncompromising stand against Russia in that war. He was one of the chief architects of Europe's various uh, fairly tough sanctions packages against Vladimir Putin's Russia. Um, It seems like his ouster could really be good news for the Kremlin in some ways. His ouster could be really interesting on uh, on on that front and so many others. I think it it could uh, it could lead to some pretty major changes in Italy that affects every part of of Italian of Italian politics. Because you're right, you look at some of the other groups within Italy. Uh, you know, Matteo Salvini, for example, one of a, a potential next prime minister. Uh, he hasn't really seemed to know how to respond, I don't think, to what's been going on in Ukraine. He was pretty pro-Russia, pro-Kremlin in the run-up to the invasion. And then afterwards, he's kind of, I think he's not really known whether to to try and stick with that or whether to pivot and, and try and be anti-Ukraine now because that's the way, or anti-Russia, sorry, because that's the way the wind's blown. He's lost a lot of popularity because of his uh, previous pro-Russian stance. So yeah, you could have this kind of crack in the wall or uh, break in in, in, the, in European responses. You've got it, Germany trying to maintain a pretense of opposition to Russia. Uh, Italy, you could see even the end of uh, any appearance and, and a genuine siding with Russia potentially. That could be a politi- pr- pretty big development. And I think you know, last week we talked about the economic possible economic developments, the possibility of an economic crash, uh, the fact that getting rid of Draghi could. Uh, it could precipitate an Italian debt crisis, which would be massive for the European Union. Uh, Euro Intelligence had a piece this week. They talked about how that could be bigger than the crash of nineteen of, of the nineteen twenties. You know, bigger than nineteen twenty nine. Uh, so that's a that's a huge subject. But we addressed that last week. What we didn't really talk about last week is this political fallout, because that could be massive as well. I mean, you look at uh, who the potential next prime ministers are. Now, we don't know for sure that Italy is going to an election. They could get another caretaker prime minister in there. But generally, the uh, the the commentators are saying that uh, our next election is most likely, uh, and it would probably be held sometime around October, that uh, you could have a very, you know, a radically different Italian government. I mean, you look at the, you look at the leaders and... Uh, you know, the, the two leading parties are basically competing with each other to be the heirs of Mussolini. It is quite a dramatic uh, political change. Cha- you know, we're talking about neo-fascism coming into power in a major Western nation. That is what we could be looking at now uh, in Italy. Uh, the Just about everybody is talking about uh, Gorgia Maloney. Uh, she's the leader of the Brothers of Italy party. And you know, basically, you know, Italian parties, they often rebrand and, and things like that. But you go back to the origins of the Brothers of Italy party, and it was started in 1946 by Mussolini's supporters. You know, obviously, after World War II, 1945, 1946, they couldn't start another fascist party. That would have been, a, that would have been illegal. Uh, so they come along, they start the Brothers of Italy. The leader, so the leader of you know, the successor party to Mussolini could well be the next prime minister. They had one of Mussolini's, I think it was his great-grandson, running as a candidate in the the European election. Now, some of other of Mussolini's uh, descendants have run in in other parties, 
But what I think was unique about the Brothers of Italy is they really did not shy away from you know that their their poster was a big had a big Italian flag and then said vote Mussolini uh, over it. You know they were this wasn't sorry the guy's a nice guy honest he just happens to be related to Mussolini. They were kind of celebrating uh, they were celebrating this connection. And they've had all kinds of things like this. They've had their mayors holding celebratory dinners on the anniversary of key events in, in Mussolini's campaign, uh, all of this kind of thing. And then I mentioned Mario Salvini. He's kind of another uh, potential next prime minister. You know, both of these parties, they're kind of rivals, but they could also well end up coalition partners together. Uh, between the two of them, it, they are, uh, you know, they look like they could get around 40% of the vote. It's, they wouldn't need much extra help for them to be able to come together as a coalition. And you know, he's deliberately tried to model himself after Mussolini. You're kind of being seen in similar environments, similar photo shoots, similar meet and greets, you know, meeting people topless on the beach like Mussolini used to do or using the same balcony uh, that Mussolini did, even using some of the same slogans uh, and using a book publisher who talked about how wonderful the fascists were. Uh, it's, uh, you know, again, they're both careful I think in, in in terms of not crossing a line, but they want to look as like Mussolini as possible without crossing that line. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you're, a neo-fascist neo-fascism coming back in a, coming back to um, to Italy that could be that could be huge. Yeah, that is really sobering to hear about. You know, all the political and economic dysfunction in Italy right now, and of course the leadership vacuum there, and just to consider all of the parallels with what happened there in the 1920s. And, you know, that led to Europe's darkest chapter of, of history. Could you place this in the context of, of Bible prophecy? Sure. Well, what I think is, is kind of fascinating even about the timing of all this, uh, just over a week ago, we had a trumpet, uh, an article, a trumpet brief from trumpet editor in chief, Gerald Flurry, just talking about how, uh, Britain, Israel, Judah, you know, the Jewish state in the Middle East, Israel, America, they've all got these big political changes. And he kind of put those in that prophetic context. That article was America and Judah's government fall, uh, Britain and Judah's government's falls, America next. And I think it's, he talks about the, the major possible prophetic implications that you could see and a major even prophetic transformation that you could see over the next few months in these nations. I think it's fascinating now to see in Italy, the potential for a major transformation in the same time period. And this is another keystone prophecy going all the way back even to the 1930s. Herbert W. Armstrong was writing about the rise of the Holy Roman Empire in Italy and in Germany and in Central Europe. And he was talking about these Bible prophecies in, in Daniel 2, Daniel 8, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, some of the, the scriptures we mentioned very often on this show, that you're going to have a rise of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and this kind of church-state relationship is going to to come back, uh, and uh, we, we, you know, we're going to see a return of that. And he pointed to Mussolini, and he pointed to Adolf Hitler as well, but pointed to Mussolini and talked about and played, made, you know, took a lot about the relationship he had with the Catholic Church, the concordat he signed with the Catholic Church, how he aimed to revive the Roman Empire, and right now we're seeing exactly the same dynamic in Italy, and you could see a major change in line with that dynamic very soon. Uh, the Associated Press, they were just talking about um, all the Mussolini. They had an article several years ago talking about this kind of Mussolini renaissance. Uh, and they they wrote, the strength of Mussolini's rhetoric drawing heavily on the old glory of the Roman Empire still has not lost political currency. 
so you know, the spirit of the Holy Roman Empire is alive and well in Italy. It is coming back. It is coming back in Europe. It is back in so many ways, but maybe not back in a super public manner. But we can see that Holy Roman Empire now really potentially rising to the scene very quickly. And it might that might be imminent. That might just be a few months away now uh, in Italy. So that's just a critical Bible prophecy uh, that, again, has been forecast for so, so long. You could watch being fulfilled before your eyes a major milestone in end time events. And you can read more about this Holy Roman Empire in our book, The Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy. Mr. Palmer has written an article all about this on thetrumpet.com. It's called Italy, Exit the Dragon. We will leave a link to that in the show notes for today's program. And we'll also link to our free book that he just mentioned there, The Holy Roman Empire and Prophecy, which puts all of Europe's history and its uh, current trajectory as well in the big prophetic picture. So please check both of those out. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. For the next story... We'll take a look at the U.S., where President Joe Biden encountered some resistance this week in Congress to his plan to pass some legislation about the climate. But rather than let the plan die, Biden took to the proverbial pen and phone and unilaterally passed this legislation. To tell us about this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is a, a pretty shocking development in United States politics that happened this week, just highlighting how uh, authoritarian the presidency has become really since um, about halfway through the second turn of Barack Obama, but definitely escalating since then. Now, what happened this week was that um, Democrats in Congress had been trying to pass a pretty major uh, overhaul of the federal government's response to climate change, uh, putting money into getting like air conditioners and cooling units and high heat areas, getting uh, wind power off the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and really trying to like beef up the infrastructure to withstand against floods and hurricanes and, and other things like that. Now, this is expensive. It actually it ends up costing about 2.3 billion dollars so uh one of the votes the democrats needed to pass this bill was from senator joe manchin he's a democrat but from a fairly conservative district in west virginia so manchin made it known that he would not vote for this bill because 2.3 billion in spending right before the midterm election is likely to make inflation worse and that's not something a ton of americans are excited about right now worse inflation uh and he did not want to have to tell his constituents that he was responsible for this inflation so he's like i'm not i'm not he's like you guys can do what you want but i'm not i'm not helping you with this one and uh so biden like i said he got out his proverbial pen and phone and, and passed all the things that he said he wanted to do. He's approved the $2.3 billion for the, uh, the uh, infrastructure to uh, fight against climate crises, approved the, the windmills off the, the Gulf of Mexico, approved the, the heating unit spending and all these things, which are actually going to make inflation worse. But he, he said something pretty, uh, pretty shocking when he did all this. He, uh, he said, since Congress is not acting as it should, and these guys he here are, we're not getting any Republican votes. This is an emergency. As president, I'll use my executive power to combat the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. So basically saying is like, well, the Republicans in Congress aren't passing the laws I, as the president of the United States, want them to pass or, or really uh, – 
that my my boss Barack Obama wants them to pass. I'm going to do this by executive action, and um, this uh, this really harkens back to something. Very similar, Barack Obama said when he was in office, not about climate change specifically, but about a myriad of other issues where uh, he said, I've got a pen and I've got a phone and I can use that pen to sign executive orders and to take executive actions and administrative actions that move the ball forward to helping to make sure our kids are getting the best education possible, making sure our businesses are getting the kind of support and help they need to grow in advance to make sure that people are getting skills that they need to get those jobs our businesses are creating. And then I believe, um, I believe somewhere else even said, it's like where Congress won't act, I will. And uh, one of the articles, we'll put a couple articles in the show notes. One of the articles we can put in the show notes is called The, the Rise of the Super President from uh, our May, June 2016 Trumpet Print Edition, which quotes from... Um, a Georgetown law professor, Jonathan Turley, who's actually a liberal himself, but, but a liberal who believes in the Constitution. There's not many of them. Uh, but he, he believes that he's like, oh, I'm fine with you doing liberal things, but you need to go through the three-part system balance of powers, executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch that James Madison and the founding fathers established. Uh, and so uh, he said when Obama did that, and he, he was Obama's supporter, he voted for Obama. He said, the system of separation of powers was not created to protect the authority of each branch for its own sake. Rather, it's the primary protection of individual rights because it prevents the concentration of power in any one branch. In this sense, Obama is not simply posing a danger to the constitutional system. He has become the very danger that the separation of powers was designed to avoid. And so here's a, a liberal law professor basically saying that like the founding fathers designed the constitution to have a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch to prevent someone like Barack Obama from just reigning uh, as a dictator with his pen uh, and with his phone. Uh, and now uh, Joe Biden, who, like I said, there's, there's, credible, there's credible reports that he's well into senility right now. So I don't, I don't know how much he even knows what's going on. Uh, but definitely under the influence of Barack Obama and the Obama officials around him, uh, he's, uh, he's still using uh, Barack Obama's pen and Barack Obama's phone to uh, make sure that these things get done. And like you said, if, if the Republicans and uh, Congress don't do what Biden says, or, or even if a halfway sane Democrat like Joe Manchin doesn't do what he says. They'll get that pen in the phone and he'll make sure that make sure that happens. Yeah. So this is a really alarming breach in the, you know, the system of checks and balances. What can you tell us about how Biden's rate of executive actions thus far into his presidency compares to that of Obama? And also what about uh, President Trump in between the two of them? Is this a tactic that both parties use? It is. I actually, <laughs> now I wish I would have brought more research on that one. I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. But uh, I, we did do an infographic um, late last year or, or, or several months ago uh, showing that for his first two or three months in office, uh, Joe Biden was signing executive actions at a rate uh, like hitherto unprecedented. Mm. Uh, he, he definitely signed it more than uh, more than any other president in 
uh, in history. It, it's probably slowed down a little bit since then. It normally does. And the other thing is that um, you need to remember with these executive actions is that they're not it's, it's hard to just compare number to number to determine how unconstitutional a president is because, I mean, George Washington signed executive actions. I think the first executive action ever signed was that, like, every cabinet officer needs to put a report on my desk about what they did that week. <laughs> and so that that's not an unconstitutional executive action. He's the executive. He's executing the laws. He has cabinet officials who are helping him execute those laws. He wants to know what they're up to. So he, he made an executive order to give me a weekly report. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, like what Biden's saying is that like, okay, well, we were going to pass a law, but then the Republicans didn't pass it. So I'm just going to like sign it into law with my pen and my phone. That's, uh, that's not what executive actions were intended to do. So I know Biden's definitely signing way more than Trump, um, than President Trump. Uh, and a lot of the, and most of the ones President Trump did were actually constitutional. Um, Obama was, as with most things, a little subtler than, uh, than some other presidents to where he, uh, sometimes he wouldn't even sign an executive action. He'd just go play golf with a cabinet official and tell him to do something unconstitutional. That way the lawyers couldn't pour over the text. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely a concerning, uh, concerning development in American politics uh, and, and even distracting people. That other article, it's just maybe a little tangential point to the one I've been making. Uh, we can put in the show notes is from our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, on what the Paris Climate Agreement was really about. Uh, and he notes in that article, they said President Barack Obama joined the Paris Climate Agreement in 2016 by executive order. He bypassed Congress because he knew Congress wouldn't pass it. It was a dictatorial move. And then uh, specifically in regards to climate change, he wrote later that he said efforts to reverse climate change may look like they spring from good intentions, but there is an evil spirit behind it. Um, it's tainted by deceit, intimidation, bullying, autocratic tendencies. Uh, and then he suggests that people read his booklet, America Under Attack, which has recently been uh, expanded to uh, several times the length it was when he wrote that. So he's specifically talking about that even these uh, specifically the executive actions on climate change. Um, a lot of them are designed to weaken American industry. Now, no, granted, the executive actions that Biden just took. Most of them were about beefing up infrastructure to prevent things like floods and hurricanes and wildfires that are actually happening. Uh, and we have other literature that shows that they're happening because of God's curses on America. So this recent slew of executive actions wasn't necessarily about global warming, which is vastly exaggerated, uh, that they were about natural disasters that are actually occurring. Uh, but... Uh, it does distract people away from why, the, like the the real scriptural based reason why those natural disasters are occurring, and gives the president an excuse to uh, amass himself a level of power the Constitution doesn't give him. That's uh, very dictatorial, and that uh, and that book uh, America Under Attack uh, we just referenced even compares back to. Um, uh, the type of executive actions Antiochus Epiphanes was taking, uh, taking anciently, where just made uh, made decrees, uh, imposing his will on other people that uh, weren't based on the Bible, weren't based on Jewish law, weren't even based on Greek law, uh, but was just something that he felt needed to be done no matter what. 
The name of Andrew's article about the danger of presidents abusing executive actions is called uh, The Rise of the Super President. We will link to that in our show notes for today's episode. And then the other article that he mentioned there is called What the Paris Climate Agreement Was Really About, which we will also link to. So please check both of those articles out. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. We'll turn our attention now to Iran where experts are saying the program to build nuclear weapons is charging ahead at full speed. For the latest on this, we'll go to Brent Noctical. Yeah, this was an interview that was published uh, just today with a Spanish paper, El Pais. And uh, it was an interview with the IAEA chief, uh, Rafael Grossi. And this is the man that's tasked with monitoring Iran's uh, fast-moving uh, illegal nuclear weapons program. And... Um, You'll remember that in June, Iran began removing uh, basically all the IAEA's monitoring devices at Iran's nuclear facilities. Over 50 cameras were removed. This is the way that the IAEA verifies what Iran is doing, how far along they are in the nuclear process towards a nuclear weapon. Now, don't forget that Iran denies ever wanting a nuclear weapon. They cite a religious decree, a fatwa, that was given by the supreme leader that outlawed or said that Iran would not be moving towards, sorry, that the Islamic Republic uh, of Iran would not be moving towards um, a nuclear weapon. Um, and yet they removed all of the, the ability that the IEA had to monitor um, because, of course, they can't even inspect the facilities. They were relying on the location of these cameras. He's, he told um, the Spanish paper this, this is Grossi, the head of the IEA. The bottom line is that for almost five weeks, I've had very limited visibility with a nuclear program that is galloping ahead. And therefore, if there is an agreement, so he's still talking about a nuclear agreement that is on the table, it is going to be very difficult for me to reconstruct the puzzle of this whole period of forced blindness. And so he's very upset. Uh, I think the world should be upset. This is going unnoticed by most people that Iran is 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 no longer being, uh, we've got no eyes or ears on Iran, what Iran is doing with their nuclear weapons program. The last we heard is that they've, pr they've produced up to 60% weapons grade uranium with a short technical step of a couple of weeks before you'd get to weapons grade at 90%. And this is interesting, um, uh, Grossi's comments, because they come just days after a senior advisor to uh, now, Khomeini, the, the, leader, the supreme leader of Iran, basically said this. This was last Sunday. In a few days, we were able to enrich uranium up to 60%, and we can easily produce 90% enriched uranium. Iran has the technical means to produce a nuclear bomb. That's what one of the senior advisors to Iran's leader said. Remember, they're not after a nuclear bomb, but they have the technical means to do so, as they say. But there has been no decision by Iran to build one just yet. That's what they say. But according to the IAEA, there's no way in the world of knowing that they don't already have uh, enough weapons grade uranium for a nuclear weapon right now. Right. With the cameras off, the IAEA and the whole international community is really operating in the dark here. No clue as to what the real progress may be. Uh, I wonder if you could let the listeners know why the idea of a nuclear Iran is so alarming and why it's something that the trumpet watches and reports on so closely. Yeah, this is something we've watched for almost as long as the, the nuclear program of the Iranians has gone on. Um, 
and this is 20 years or so. I mean, Project Ahmad is what they used to call it back in the early 2000s. And we know from documents that the, uh, that the Mossad, the Israeli uh, CIA basically um, gathered from a warehouse in Tehran back in 2018, that the nuclear weapons program was fully up and running. They desired a bomb. They were going after it. And they didn't declare that to the IAEA back then before they start, even 2015, when they started these nuclear negotiations. So Iran lies. They lie, 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 and lie, and lie again. Uh, that's what we, that's that's the way they are. This is this is this is legal uh, according to Islamic law um, to lie in this fashion to to move ahead of the infidel. Um, and so there's again, we can't trust them. And now we have no eyes and no ears. Now, what do they do when they get a nuclear weapon? I think right now they they want a nuclear weapon. They're putting out these type of statements because they want to try and force the West into a nuclear agreement uh, in which they get access to all amounts of cash. Uh, right now, a senior uh, negotiator of the Iranians said that they're 95% of the way to, to an agreement uh, with, with the United States, basically. They have the text in front of them, but they want to guarantee that they have, uh, uh, quoting them now, they said that we need to get the full economic benefits of the agreement. We don't want to be bitten twice, meaning that we need to have absolute guarantee. We have access to international markets. We can ship whatever oil we want to ship to whoever we want to ship. Absolutely no sanctions anymore. And once we have that, then we'll sign a deal. Okay. And so what value is the deal? What value is this signed deal? I think there's enough evidence to show that Iran would, would break their own deal, um, even though because they're so close to a nuclear weapon anyway. The nuclear weapon gives Iran massive bargaining chip against the world, massive amounts of power because they can threaten to use it. And as opposed to all other members of the nuclear club, perhaps bar North Korea, Iran has a uh, follows a radical Islamist theology which seeks to bring worldwide chaos and the, the, the nuclear weapon would provide them the avenue to do so. So they are not worried about their own destruction uh, with the use of a nuclear weapon. Chaos itself is what brings back or, or allows their, their Messiah to return. Mr. Flurry talks about this at length in his book, Nuclear Armageddon is at the door. Uh, I do suggest people read that to recognize that, you know, while we talk about this every second week, don't get lulled to sleep. This is Iran's nuclear program is real, um, and they can have a nuclear weapon if they desire it. Nuclear Armageddon is at the door is the name of Mr. Flurry's booklet on this topic. We will link to that, and that is a free booklet that we send out at uh, no charge at all. So please pick up your copy of that if you don't yet have it. Thanks very much for that, Brent. For the next segment, we'll take a look at more evidence of China's tyranny and abuse of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. For this, we'll go to Rafaro Manyepa. Yes, uh, China is asking the United Nations to bury uh, a highly anticipated report that's that's due to come out any week now on the human rights violations that it's been perpetrating in Xinjiang. Uh, Reuters was able to obtain uh, or, or view a copy of this letter that China China sent to the uh, the the chief of the United Nations Human Rights Office and and. Actually, China sent this letter to several other countries as well. A few uh, diplomats confirmed to Reuters the authenticity of this letter. And basically what's been happening is, uh, you know, China has been 
perpetrating these abuses in Xinjiang. A lot of uh, human rights groups have been, uh, you know, calling China out about this, you know, about China's use of forced labor in these internment camps camps the the deplorable conditions that they're keeping all the detainees there and china's been denying this at every single turn and in fact they have a bit of an ally in this human rights chief that they sent the letter to her name is michelle bachelet and she's been criticized for being too soft on china she visited china last month and those mass detention centers where they're keeping the Uyghur Muslims, she just called them vocational education and training centers, uh, exactly what China calls them. But, you know, these are the places where the Chinese government is, is forcing Uyghurs into political indoctrination, into forced sterilization. That's where they're, they're doing all this ethnic cleansing. You know, since 2015, Uyghur birth rates have dropped by more than 60%. You know, so so this is what's been going on over there. And, and this report is expected to really bring to light in detail exactly what China has been doing, because e even though we know these few these few things that they've been doing and they're really terrible, it still is very sparse information because China has been very adept at hiding all of this and it's been denying everything. Yeah, so this is uh, just just one more sign of just the profound evil of the Chinese Communist Party. The the party, as you said, claims that it's only equipping Xinjiang's Muslims with job skills and trying to educate Islamic radicalism out of their thinking. But as you said, also the evidence shows that it's actually committing all kinds of extreme human rights abuses. Um, so it is no surprise that China would be trying to get this report buried. But what is your read? on how the UN might respond to this Chinese pressure. Do you think the report will be published or will they sort of comply with the CCP? Well, it's an interesting question because um, the, the human rights chief, uh, uh, Michelle Bachelet, is actually about to resign, uh, something that surprised a lot of people. And, you know, that does raise the question, is she is she resigning because she's going to do something highly unpopular with the rest of the world and, and decide not to publish this report? You know, or if it comes out, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't as condemning as it could be, if it was just, you know, a bit of a slap on the wrist. And, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, China itself said that, you know, it sent this letter to about 100 countries that all expressed their support for China in relation to Xinjiang. You, you have to take everything China says with several grains of salt, to be honest. But, you know, it's not untrue that China's got a lot of support. China's got a lot of sway in, in the United Nations lately. And, you know, this might be just another instance of this this report just not even condemning China um, because of the amount of influence that they have they have in the United Nations. Yeah, the, the United Nations has become so ideologically compromised, it's hard to envision that they would publish the report, or if they do, that it would have any sort of impact at all. Um, how do you look at a story like this in the in the big picture context? Well, like we said, you know, even though, uh, um, you know, it might not be true that uh, around 100 countries uh, do support China in relation to Xinjiang, it is it is true. China has a lot of support and it's really concerning that they would have support in regards to an issue like this with these terrible abuses that they're doing in Xinjiang. But this is something that is perfectly in line with Bible prophecy. You know, during his ministry, Jesus Christ spoke about a time known as the times of the Gentiles, you know, a time when, uh, you know, 
the the nations of uh, Israel that are primarily Great Britain and the United States, those descendants, you know, they would be losing uh, their influence. They would be losing their power uh, and, and, and all their uh, significant influence over the world. And nations like China, which are what the Bible refers to as Gentiles, would be filling that power vacuum. They would be rising up and, and, and filling in that vacuum. And Mr. Flurry, he has an article that I would highly recommend titled The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man. And he says that these Gentile powers, they have contempt for the weak. And recognizing this weakness, China has been asserting its power in the South China Sea, in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang. And that's what we've been seeing uh, developing. And that's the prophetic context. And not only China itself doing this, but having a lot of countries that support it in all that it's doing in places like Xinjiang. The Climax of Man's Rule Over Man is the name of that article by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It takes a just a careful look at the prophecies that Rafaro just mentioned there. And then we've also got an article that will be going up on the trumpet.com soon, all about this latest move by China to bury this United Nations report. So please keep an eye out for that on the trumpet.com. Thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Rafaro. We will take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about the latest in Russia war on Ukraine, the race for the UK's next leader, a new page in EU-Israel relations, and a very telling spate of scientist resignations. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The Week in Review. Well, it's hard to believe that it was almost five months ago now that Russia dramatically escalated its attack on Ukraine, turning it into a full-scale war. And this week, we saw some indications that the end is probably nowhere in sight. To tell us about this, we'll go back to Rafaro. Yes, on Wednesday, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, he said that Russia plans on gobbling up not only the Donbass region, but also the southern provinces of Kherson and Zaporizhia, along with, quote, a number of other territories. Now, there had been growing optimism that Russia might be beginning to tire of the war. You know, it, it's been rebuffed by Ukrainian resilience in, in quite an impressive way. And recently, this Ukrainian resilience has been supplemented by Western aid. America, in particular, supplied Ukraine with high-mobility artillery rocket systems that have already made a difference on the battlefield and, and reportedly had Russia in panic mode. But a series of actions show that, you know, Russia is only just digging in its heels in this war. First of all, you know, as Europe ponders decoupling itself from Russia, you know, Moscow is now working to consolidate its ties with what some people would call geopolitical outcasts. You know, it's working to expand trade ties with nations like Iran, Uzbekistan, Indonesia, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. It's working to supply all of these countries with more energy. You know, secondly, it's it's even farther away from home. Russia's lobbying support from more of the BRICS countries, you know, countries like Brazil, India, China, and South Africa. They've all been offered discounted oil. As of June, Russia is China's leading supplier of crude oil. India is importing 50 times more Russian oil. Uh, Brazil is buying more diesel from Russia. 
And Russia is even working with other countries that are prospective members of this BRICS alliance, countries like Argentina, Egypt, Iran, Syria, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Basically, with all of these countries, Russia is basically thinking that if we can get these people on side, you know, if they're the ones who are buying our oil, helping to boost our economy, we're able to weather any sanctions that the West can level towards us. That That's a long-term strategy that they're taking where they're thinking okay if we can do this then we're probably going to be able to keep going with this war because we'll be able to fund it and we won't care if the west isn't buying our oil anymore because we've got this whole other market that's able to help us keep financing this war yeah so it's it's clear that putin is trying to just build up all kinds of partnerships with other nations as he digs in for for what is shaping up to be a protracted standoff with not just Ukraine, but the whole Western world in an economic sense. Uh, what would you say is the big picture importance of this war? And what could the listeners read if they would like to better grasp that? Well, it, it's interesting that, you know, just in the spring, Russia and Ukraine did try for a peace settlement. Those co- those talks collapsed pretty quickly. And it's probably something that both sides would like, but it doesn't look really realistic at this point in time. And, you know, that's keeping in mind the significant damage that's been done to Russia's prestige, you know, its its military's reputation, but they're just not willing to throw in the towel. And it's not based on just some irrational stubbornness that, that Putin has. You know, it's, it's something he said it a year ago that a sovereign Ukraine does not exist. Right. He doesn't believe that. He, he, he didn't believe that in 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea. He didn't believe it um, at, the turn of the, at the turn of the century when he said that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And, you know, people... They don't they're not really sure how all of this is going to end. But the Bible does supply us with the answer. You know, you look at Revelation 16, verse 12, which talks about the kings of the east, uh, describes it as a military alliance that has 200 million soldiers. Ezekiel 38 says this alliance includes China and other nations, but it's primarily led by Russia and one individual in Russia named the Prince of Rosh. And I'd recommend uh, reading and uh, requesting our free booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry. He describes how, you know, Rosh was the ancient name of Russia and that if you study all of these scriptures alongside current events, Mr. Flurry says that, you know, this reveals modern Moscow's imperialist direction. You see that Russian President Vladimir Putin could well be this Prince of Rosh. And this imperialist direction is clear to see in Ukraine. And so this war could stretch out for longer than most people think. The Prophesied Prince of Russia is the name of that booklet. We will include a link to that. Thanks very much for that, Rafaro. We'll take a look now at the latest in the UK's race for a new prime minister. To tell us about this, we'll go once again to Mr. Palmer. Yes, we've reached a new phase in this race. We kind of had a very quick fire round since Boris Johnson, the current prime minister, announced that he would be resigning, where about a dozen different uh, conservative MPs put their names forward to be the next prime minister. Uh, the way this process has worked is the conservative party has had vote after vote after vote, while the weakest performer gets eliminated each time. Now we are down to just two people and the uh, the, the competition slows down a lot. Uh, now these two will, will kind of have several weeks over the summer to 
go out to the country and to uh, make their pitch. And then members of the Conservative Party, and by that I don't mean MPs sitting in Parliament this time, they selected the, or, or they were the ones responsible for whittling it down to two, but the kind of the much wider uh, rank and file members of the Conservative Party will vote. And the winner of that vote will become the next leader of the Conservative Party and therefore the next prime minister. So we, ha- we can have a pretty good idea of who the next prime minister is, barring any uh, big changes. And of course, you know, they say a week is a long time in politics. Obviously, two months is, is an aeon in politics. There are still times for that. But uh, it looks like Liz Truss is most likely now to be Britain's next prime minister. She, in polls, overwhelmingly uh, beats the person who came in first place among the MPs, Rishi Sunak. Uh, and so these two will be will be facing off. It's uh, an interesting competition, I guess. Rishi Sunak is the, currently the chancellor. He's standing, I guess, on a position of fiscal realism uh, where he say, he's refusing to promise things like tax cuts and big spending and things like that. And he says, look, no, we've got to get the debt under control before we start t- cutting taxes. Liz Truss is saying, we need to kind of kickstart the economy. In order to do that, we need to cut taxes. That's kind of the the main difference between them. Uh, Miss Truss voted, or Mrs. Truss, I, I'm not sure which actually, she voted for to, for Britain to remain in the European Union, but since then has kind of pivoted to try and market herself as a hardline Brexit MP. Rishi Sunak voted to leave the European Union. Uh, but doesn't really talk too much uh, about Brexit. But that's the uh, the state of play right now. So Mr. Gerald Flurry wrote an article last week. It's called Britain's and Judah's Governments Fall, American Next. It draws some uh, some really interesting parallels between the kind of the turmoil that we're seeing right now with British politics and the situations in Israel and America. Could you talk just briefly about that? Yes. So uh, I mentioned that in the first half as well, but this from last week just talks about um, the connection, the important connection between these three countries. And it is fascinating to see all three countries together go through very similar political turmoils. Israel, of course, is having elections and they've had a lot of uh, political struggles. America, you've got the whole election steal scandal. So this goes through both in kind of the long term in the overview, how all of these nations are descended from Israel and just the way God is working through these nations. And then also on the short term, how God indicates there'll be a revival uh, for both of these countries in the short term to allow him to get a message out to these three countries in particular. So that article, uh, Britain and Judah's governments fall America next is a great place to get this overview and just to to see the role that these three countries play in God's plan for, for all of mankind. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. For the next story, we'll look at the European Union's Foreign Affairs Council. They made a, a pretty notable decision this week about Israel. For this, we'll turn it back over to Brent. This is a a semi-big decision that's coming down from the EU uh, Foreign Affairs Council, and that's to continue or re-establish the bilateral meetings that happen annually with the State of Israel. Israel has a really close relationship, a special relationship with the EU, its special status as a a non-EU country, and yet it's really considered among the the European community. Um, and so there has been over the past couple of decades a decision to meet with all the foreign ministers, including Israel, and have a bilateral uh, summit every year. Now, this is something that was actually stopped 
back in 2013, um, the EU made a decision that issued new regulations back in 2013. This is under the Netanyahu government, um, where they the EU decided that no Israel body that operates uh, within the West Bank or has links to anyone within the West Bank can also receive EU funding or have any cooperation with the EU. So it's basically blacklisting a lot of Israeli companies that have any ties to um, work that takes place in Judea and Samaria. And this, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of Jews that live in Judea and Samaria. This angered Israel. And so they decided to stop these, you know, the warm ties between the two uh, in, in this type of business to business relationship that these bilateral meetings kind of show. So this has now changed. The EU position has not changed. But um, the EU has decided to let Israel back into having these summits. And this is being led by the current acting prime minister, the caretaker prime minister, Yair Lapid. Uh, it seems like the Europeans are warmer to him. And he's certainly shown himself as going after the EU and trying to reestablish close ties as possible with the European Union, regardless of whether they still hold these anti-Israel policies, uh, which was the cause of the of the severing of these of these uh, meetings back in 2012. So after about 10 years, they're back on the uh, the EU's Foreign Affairs Council has long pushed for a two state solution for Israel and Palestine. You think we should expect this renewed dialogue to make any progress toward that end? Yeah, I think it it was interesting in the statement by uh, Joseph Burrell, the EU foreign policy chief, basically the EU foreign minister. Uh, he said this, uh, quote, the position of the European Union has not changed with, with respect to the Middle East peace process. We continue with the same council, that is the UN Security Council resolution that they backed, uh, council conclusion of, the two, of 2016 supporting the two-state solution. So this this was really a um, the European Union, uh, by virtue of the the member states that are a part of the UN Security Council and others. Um, you'll remember this this really powerful um, resolution that came through the the Security Council that Obama vetoed, which was an anti-Israel resolution that declared uh, the West Bank, even East Jerusalem, um, that this wasn't you know Israeli territory. This was was the future home of a Palestinian state. And that is the policy of the EU to this day. It's the policy of Joe Biden. Uh, as an aside, he was here last week. And one of the, the interesting things that he did was he met, went onto the Mount of Olives, Mount Scopus area, which is just over the border into East Jerusalem. And when I say border, there's no border. Um, technically, this is just East Jerusalem, the, the land that Jordanians controlled. And he visited uh, Augusta, uh, uh, forget uh, Victoria, Augusta Victoria, something like that. It's a, it's a hospital convent on the Mount of Olives and on the beast, his big limousine, he chose to take out the Israeli flag for that visit, even though it's, it's US law that all of Jerusalem is, uh, belongs to Israel. He removed that flag and just kept the uh, American flag there. Really just a symbol of the fact that this current administration holds true to that Barack Obama resolution in 2016 that seeks to split Jerusalem. And the EU is on board with that. And even Yair Lapid, he knows their stance, but he's going after them as well. His first foreign meeting was with uh, Emmanuel Macron, the leader of France. Uh, I think on July 12th, uh, he signed a deal with Sebastian, well, 
the the Chancellor of Austria, something that Sebastian Kurz started up, some type of security uh, pact with the Austria. Uh, that was finalized under Yair Lapid. And so what we're seeing here under this leadership is really close ties with the EU, um, even though the EU is, is very anti-Israel controlling East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And I think it's a couple of things important here prophetically. I think the main thing is that uh, Hosea 5 and verse 13 brings out that the trouble that Israel is going to find itself in uh, going forward with a lack of a, actually an American ally eventually um, is that they're going to seek out European intervention and European help inside the peace process. Uh, Hosea 5 and th verse 13 talks about this peace process um, being a sickness to Judah or biblical Israel, and they're going to go to the Assyrian or modern day Germany, and this is a German-led Europe we're talking about now, um, to get help. And this is going to result in a great double cross on the Jewish people, uh, as you could expect historically to take place. And so these warming ties between this government and European leaders, all the while that European, European Union leaders hold anti-Israel policies really to speak to this coming, um, this coming event mentioned in Hosea 5 and verse 13. What a reading would you recommend for listeners who would like to better understand that prophetic context? I think the last uh, two chapters of Jerusalem, uh, The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem, a wonderful booklet that came out a couple of years ago written by Mr. Flurry. Um, it really speaks to this prophecy and the, and the prophetic timeline of events and how Israel reaching out to Europe fits in with that. The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem is the name of that booklet by Trump Editor-in-Chief Daryl Flurry. Uh, so please check that out for more understanding about the, the uh, importance of, of this EU-Israel relationship. Thanks very much for that, Brent. For our final story of the show today, we'll look at the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S., where their Vaccine Research Center has suffered some high-profile resignations. To tell us what's behind this, we'll go back to Andrew. Yeah, getting back to the point we made in the, the first half about uh, executive orders and uh, people being basically commanded to get the results that their, their boss said, there's been a really disturbing number of resignations in America's big health agencies. Uh, several top scientists, several doctors, um, uh, even a director of one of these agencies have resigned, basically saying that while in public, Dr. Anthony Fauci tells all the vaccine skeptics to follow the science, uh, in private, many of these doctors are saying that they've never seen such weak data and slipshod science uh, in their life. Uh, they had several uh, really disturbing, uh, disturbing quotes here. Uh, one senior food and uh, drug administrator told investigative journalists that his agency authorized the COVID-19 vaccine for infants and toddlers with no reliable clinical data. He also told them it deliberately bypassed external experts to authorize booster shots for young children. Uh, and another one actually told these, <laughs> told these journalists, he says, it's like a horror movie. I'm being forced to watch and I can't close my eyes. People are getting bad advice and we can't say anything. Uh, another one said morale is low. Things have become so political. It's like, what are, even we, what are we even here for? I used to be proud to tell people I worked for the Center for Disease Control. Now I'm embarrassed. And so um, 
yeah, just never a number of cases of just basically how these news agencies are not following the science. Uh, and there's been um, at least, according to the Center of Disease Control's old data, at least 1.3 million uh, adverse reactions to these mRNA vaccines, things like birth defects, hospitalizations, even deaths, because they bypass their normal safety standards. And so, um, again, we, we talked about that book, uh, America Under Attack, in the first half. There's a, a chapter in there about will worship that, uh, that definitely really explains the, uh, this type of uh, just bad science where, for political reasons, the government wants these lockdowns and these stimulus packages, and they're, they're using the coronavirus as an excuse. Uh, but, the, but the science these agencies are doing is not based on natural laws, but based on uh, political, uh, political agenda. Yeah, very sobering to see how politics increasingly trumps truth in, in just about any field that you look at. And Andrew has written an article about this. It's called Scientists Resign Over Public Health Agencies' Refusal to Follow Science. Um, that'll be up on thetrumpet.com soon, so please keep an eye out for that. And if you look at the show notes for today's episode of Trumpet Hour, you'll see links there for all of the various books and articles that we've mentioned today. Well, we are coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please send any comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Rafaro Manyapa, Mr. Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks also very much to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. And we'll leave you today with these words from E.O. Wilson. If history and science have taught us anything, it is that passion and desire are not the same as truth. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.